0: What do you do when you encounter a funeral procession while driving? Do you know the protocol or etiquette for funeral procession in traffic? The National Funeral Directors Association advises drivers to do the following. Number one, yield the right-of-way just as you defer to an emergency vehicle. Number two, pull over and allow the procession to go by if it is safe to move to the shoulder. Number three, never cut into or tag on to the end of a procession because it is rude to interrupt or join a funeral procession of which you are not a participant. I must confess that I did that. You know, back in when I was a teenager, I followed the procession to beat the traffic. And uh, I'm not the only one. There was a line behind me. But, yeah. But be respectable. Never honk your horn or yell or show any sign of aggression. Today, we will see when Jesus actually encountered a funeral procession, Jesus did not yield the right of way. Actually, he halted it. Why? It was because of his compassion. And this compassion changed the funeral procession into a great celebration, probably the greatest celebration so far in his public ministry. Compassion of Christ is the true hope of our life. With that, let's read our text today. Luke chapter 7, verse 11 to 17. Let's read it responsively. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, uh, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the buyer. They were carrying him on, on the bearers to steal. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. They are all filled with awe and praise God. And great prophet has appeared among us. And they say God has come to help his people. Let's read together. This news about Jesus spread throughout the Judea and the surrounding country. Flowers fall, but the words of God last forever. Today's sermon, I mean today's story, Start with the soon after in verse 11. Soon after from what? It's after Jesus healed a servant of a Roman centurion in Capernaum. Do you remember the amazing face of a Roman centurion that we studied last week? Today, we will study amazing compassion of Christ. Amazing compassion of Christ. Luke connected these two stories together as a pair. Why? The answer is found in the first sermon of Jesus and Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. Jesus declared himself to be jubilee, our jubilee, and fulfills God's promise of a favorite year to restore the sick and release the prisoner and redeem the poor. Then Jesus gave an amazing extension of God's grace to everyone, including Gentiles. For that, Jesus used two Gentiles as an example. Naaman, the Aramean general, you know, leper and the nameless widow of Sidon as examples of God's faithfulness. And for such an inclusive and incredible gospel, Nazarenes, his hometown people, actually attacked Jesus. And now in chapter 7, Luke used another Gentile military leader a nameless widow to point it out, Jesus fulfilled God's amazing grace of a jubilee for us. And here, also, Luke is presenting that Jesus cares both man and woman. You know, Roman Gentile was a man. And, uh, you know, this widow is obviously woman. And uh, Jesus, this is a characteristic of a Gospel of Luke, that Jesus cares both man and woman. You know, when you study Luke chapter 15 in Cornerstone, did you see the parable of a lost ship? shepherd is a man, lost coin, the main character is a woman. You know, when it comes to gender, Jesus is the ultimate egalitarian, for he welcomes both men and women as his disciples. That's another anomaly, you know, for Jewish rabbi. He welcomed both genders, not just males. Today we will learn about the amazing compassion of Christ. And as we read, Jesus showed his compassion to a widow in a town called Nain, which was uh, six miles southeast of uh, Nazareth, his hometown. By the way, Luke's Gospel mentions widow more than any other books in the New Testament. You know, 13 out of 35 mentioning about, uh, widows is in the book of, you know, uh, Gospel of Luke. So from the pious widow, Anna, who welcomed the arrival of Jesus, in Luke chapter 2, to the poor widow who gave her last penny to the temple treasury. Luke narrates the stories about widow more than any other gospel writers or even New Testament writers. Why? Widows, along with the orphans, are the most destitute people. And our God cares for this kind, very broken, desperate people. Now, Today's story tells us three reasons why compassion of Christ is amazing. You know, three reasons why compassion of Christ is amazing. For that, I want to point out three particular verbs in our story. So, first one, Jesus saw. Jesus saw. Second one, Jesus spoke. Jesus spoke. Third one, the news about Jesus spread. News about Jesus spread. So, so. First, so compassion sees, compassion speaks, and compassion you know, spreads. Now, let's look at the compassion of Christ first. Let's see what Jesus saw. Verse 11 Soon after Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him, as he approached the town gate, uh, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with, him, with her. So Jesus and the large crowd of his followers met another large crowd from the town of Nain at the town gate. I love the looks, picturesque contrast here. You know, procession, the Jesus procession of life and joy versus procession of death and sadness at the town gate. You know, it's like a, a Western movie, you know, the gunslingers facing each other right at there. You know, the entourage of a Jesus and this a funeral procession are facing each other. Now, while most funeral procession, I'll say most funeral procession, because some, I mean, most funeral procession is solemn and sad. And I don't say all, because some funeral processions I actually pray for. You know I can wait for the funeral procession of Kim Jong-un. I can wait for the some of the you know dictators funeral procession. So not all funeral processions are sad, but mostly they are sad and solemn. But this funeral procession was doubly tragic because it was the death of the only son of a widow. You know, this widow already had a tragedy of a bearing, her Husband before. And then she probably expected the next funeral, family funeral would be hers, not her son's, right? But today she has to go through another premature funeral of her only child, let alone only son. According to Swiss you know, psychiatrist Carl Jung, death of a child is always a hard to the parents because it is most unnatural. It's like a praying a period before the end of the sentence. To this widow, her son was not just her only child, but only security. Back then, there was no life insurance or social security. Your child, especially your son, was your life security. Nothing could be worse for this widow. From here on, she had to suffer emotionally and financially and also spiritually. Can there be anyone's tragedy worse than hers today? You know, her suffering was so tragic and deep. A large crowd from a town was with her. So, verse 13, when Jesus saw her, his heart went out to her. In the actual Greek text, is that a Jesus had a compassion for her, and Jesus told her, don't cry. Now, you know, when people see uh, other people suffering, we have a compassion. But I must say, not all compassions are the same. People, when people say, don't cry, you know, people mean sort of different people have a different rationale. For instance, you know, Greek philosophers called the Stoics. They also say don't cry, because they think that crying is useless and counterproductive. Emotional breakdown does not change anything. Thus, instead of crying, Stoics said conduct yourself calmly and rationally. You know, Stoics would say there's nothing we can do about death, just control your fear or sadness. And the famous Stoic philosopher Epictus said that I cannot escape death but i can at least escape the fear of it how about in the east in east buddhists go farther. buddhists say don't cry but accept the suffering as a part of our life it is very similar to stoics but buddhists go a little deeper and uh, there is a famous parable in buddhism called the parable of a mustard seed and the main character of that parable is a woman named Kisa Kotami, who lost her only child as was struck with a deep grief. So she carried her dead son to Buddha and asked him to make her son live again. With patience and compassion, Buddha heard her story and said to her, Kisa Kotami, there is only one way to solve your problem. Go and find me four or five mustard seed from any family in which there has has never been a death. So Kisa Kotami was filled with hope, set off the straight way to find such a household, and very soon, she discovered that every family she visited had an experience of a death of one person or another. And in the process, at last, she understood what Buddha wanted her to find out for herself. That is, suffering is a part of her life, and death comes to all. Once uh, uh, Kotami Kota, uh, uh, accepted the fact that death is inevitable, she could stop grieving. She finally buried her child, and later returned to Buddha to become his follower. Okay, the reason I mentioned, you know, this uh, a Buddhist story was to actually to share a testimony of a Buddhist monk who later became a Christian pastor. And his name is Song Hwa Kim. Formerly known as Abbot Hae Haegyong. Haegyung's name, Korean would say. He was a son of a Buddhist monk of a Jodo sect, which is a Japanese version of a pure land Buddhism, and they allowed the monks, Buddhist monks, to get married. And uh, he lost both parents when he was young, but because others saw how smart he was, they helped him to get an education. And he graduated from Gyeongbuk National University in Daegu, South Korea. And we have uh, transferred students to UTD from Gyeongbuk National University. Where are you? Okay, Pogyong. It's one of the top national universities in Korea. So, you know, uh, so uh, he was, this uh, Haegyeong, you know, the uh, monk Haegyeong, he was a bivocational uh, monk. So he also taught a math at the local local high school. At one time, his high school rented a facility for a church retreat, and the pastor got to know this monk. And the, during the dinner, he, the, this pastor told this Haegyeong that, uh, I sense that there is some spiritual things going on, you know, you have some heart for God and one day you will be a Christian. And this Buddhist monk was so offended. You know, a how th- he knows that I'm a monk and how dare he, you know, say something like that to a monk, you know. And then this pastor said, I will pray until you became a whatever. Now, to make a long, you know, a farther down, because not many Buddhist monks were college educated, he eventually became a director of education and evangelism in his Buddhist denomination. He was also very socially conscientious, so he protested against the dictatorship of a South Korean government at the time. As a result, he was imprisoned as a political dissident, and now is the conclusion is coming. And one day, prison guard was you know, changed, And this new prison guard insisted the only available book in the prison library was a New Testament. And that was a lie. And uh, the monk was uh, pleading him to give him a Buddhist scripture, but uh, this new Christian prison guard or correction officer would not budge. He said, why don't you read a bestseller that everybody, you know, are familiar. Why don't you read for yourself? So finally, Monk Hagen gave up and this, you know, out of craving to read a book, he began to read the New Testament. And lo and behold, when he came to our text today, Luke chapter 7, he was deeply shocked to see the difference between Buddha and Jesus in their compassions toward the widow. Both had a compassion for widow. But Buddha was, and Haegyeong said, Buddha was a great human teacher but Jesus was more than that. Buddha did the best consolation a human being can do but Jesus did more than consolation. He conquered death for the widow. Jesus' compassion is different from human compassion. You know, human compassion is basically commiseration, commiseration. Sharing misery together or suffering together. By the way, you know, sharing grief and burden together is a good thing. It's a humane thing to do. And we are called to do that You know, Bible. But you must know that Christ's compassion is a more than commiseration. It is a divine compassion. When Jesus saw the widow and his heart went out, his power also went out for her. Amen? Jesus eventually saved her. So that's our second point. Let's see how Jesus saved her. Verse 13. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and said, don't cry. And then he went up and touched the buyer. There they were carrying him on and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. I want to point out the two saving powers of Jesus here. First, Jesus touched a bier. Jesus touched the bier. Bier was a, a movable frame on which a corpse. Do we have a picture? Yeah, a corpse was placed and transported to a family grave, uh, which was probably located in the cave, you know, outside of a town. And because of the warm weather in Palestine, the burial was a very speedy. So when a person died, the eyes of disease was closed and the mouth and ear was bound up. Otherwise, the liquid comes out and body was washed and anointed. And they all, you know, did it probably within span of day. According to Mosaic law, Numbers 19.11, whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. And Jesus touched the corpse. That means he broke the law. Now... In case of ordinary human beings, un, when they touch unholy or unclean, unclean stuff like a corpse contaminates them or corrupts them. But when Jesus touched the unholy, you know what happened? It is unholy that is changed. So that's the power of a holy God to transform us. You know? When God touched the unholy, God actually transformed it. When we touch the unholy, we become unholy. But when God touches the unholy, we become, you know, unholy is transformed. And St. Augustine said, made the same confession in the, his famous book, Confession. He said, I knew myself to be far away from you in the region of our unlikeness. He was confessing he's unholy. And I seem to hear your voice from on high. And this is what God told St. Augustine. I am the food of a mature grow, then you will eat me and you will not change me into yourself like a bodily food, but you will be changed into me. Yeah? When we eat God's, God, or God's food, that is God's word, taking God's word into our heart, God said we will be changed into him. We will be like to him. You know, faith comes to hearing and the hearing from the word of God. This is why for us we emphasize Good uh, Shepherd College and Bible study and we encourage everybody to take uh, you know, at least you know, uh, one class each quarter you know, and uh, when you want to take a break serve in the children's ministry, youth ministry or house church. You have to balance uh, diet and exercise, right? For your physical health you balance a diet and exercise. Spiritual health is the same thing. That's why we called our Bible study program Good Shepherd College. The reason we learn God's word is to be a good shepherd to other people. Otherwise, the knowledge becomes an arrogance. Okay? Now, second and the most important saving power of Jesus that we should recognize here, we should miss is this. Listen to me. Jesus did not pray for the resurrection of a widow's son. What did he do? He simply spoke to the dead body. He simply told him. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. So this is the second point. The compassion of Christ simply speaks and life starts again. By the way, Jesus was not the only one who raised that child. In the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha also did the same miracle. But you have to see, you will see there's a huge difference. So look at the first king, chapter 17, verse 21 to 23. Uh, let me read verse 19 first. Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from his, uh, from his arms and carried him into the upper room where he was staying and laid him, laid him on his bed. Then Elijah stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. And the Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's Life returned to him and he lived, and Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. And he did what? Gave him to the mother, right? He gave him to the mother. And Luke copy that phrase and use it, Luke chapter 7, 15, that Jesus gave him back to his mother. So Luke is aware the difference between Jesus raising this widow's child versus. The Elijah's miracle. Now, let's look at another, you know, a miracle of a resurrection in Elijah, you know, Elijah's disciple Elisha in 2nd Kings chapter 4, 34. Then he got on the bed and lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hands to hand. Elisha was uh, imitating his uh, teacher's you know uh, story here. And then he stretched himself out on him, and the boy's body grew warm. Elisha uh, turned away and walked back and forth in the room. I think he was hitting up his body. That's what he's saying. And he got on the bed and stretched out on him once more. And boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Now, both Elijah and Elisha cried out to God and performed somewhat elaborate maneuvers. But what did Jesus do? He simply commanded he simply commanded the dead child to live again, and the dead could hear Jesus' command and obeyed his word. Hallelujah. Once again, we need to see here that Jesus did not pray, simply spoke to the dead person, that person as if he was alive, and Jesus is a truly Lord of both the dead and living. And in his presence, Death has no power or any effect at all. Death death cannot block or hide anything in the presence of Jesus. This dead man could hear Jesus and much more reply to him. So whenever Jesus is present, life is present too. Here Luke is telling us, Jesus is a more than prophet. Jesus is a more than prophet. He was more than an agent of a God's miracle like a prophet Elijah and Elisha. He himself is a source of a miracle. He is a God-man. He is a son of God incarnated in human flesh to save us. Now, let's see And the third and final truth about the amazing compassion of Christ. In verse 16 and 17. They are all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us. They say God has come to help his people. The news about Jesus spread throughout the Judea and surrounding country. Here, the third and final point is a powerful compassion of Christ spread all over. You know, notice this. This miracle happened where? town called uh, Nain, which was located in Galilee, north of Israel, you know, northern part of Israel. But news spread to where? To south, to the main Jewish province called uh, Judea. That means its impact was more than local. It was a national, even international. Surrounding country people were excited about this story. Here, look connects the story of Jesus to his later ministry in Judea where he would, you know, show later that Jesus would show us later the ultimate resurrection through his death on the cross. Luke wants to tell us. This story has a ramification to everyone who heard it and still hears it. Now, wake up and imagine. How shocked and happy the widow was. Can anyone feel more saved than this widow right now? Just a split of second, she was delivered from the hellish anguish of losing her only son and the, any viable future for herself. And now to the heavenly joy of seeing her son again and her life receiving the second chance. Who can be more ecstatic and grateful and saved than this woman? By the way, when you read this story, when you heard this story today, do you feel, wow, what a miracle, what a lucky widow. I wish Jesus were there when my father or mother or my child or my loved ones are dying on the hospital bed. I want you to remember this. The Jesus who has compassion on this widow It's the same Jesus who died on the cross for our sin and rose again for our future. What this widow experienced here today is what we'll experience exponentially in our life, in our future. That's why Jesus was trying to tell his audience as us today. So he looks at what Jesus has done in name it spread all over you know how much is it spread it's spread even to me today you know there is a very important theological term it's a sort of a fancy term so if you use those words to any theologians or pastors they will be surprised oh, you know that word you know that word is this proleptic proleptic okay good word to remember Proleptic. This is a proleptic event. Proleptic event is a God's gracious revelation or preview of what will come at the end. God is showing us what will happen at the end of a history, in the middle of a history, and the theological term for that is a proleptic event. This is a proleptic event, and the Book of Revelation 21:4 says this. On the final day, God will wipe out every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning, crying or pain for all the order of things have passed away and we all know God made all things new. You know, one day you and I will be ecstatic like this widow. Yes, this widow is our future, our picture coming. On that day, when I see my father and my pastor, you know I'm going to tell my father who passed away, you know, 12 years ago, that all your sacrifice for me and your invest for my education were not in vain, Father. Even though I didn't become a wealthy businessman that you hoped, but I'm a become a, I became a wealthy pastor. And, you know, I really, you know, serve God and his most beloved church. And I want to tell my pastor, thank you for teaching me about the heart of God. I try to become the second best pastor in the world. Thank you for being the best pastor in the world for me. I try to, I try to emulate you every, every time I see our people. You know, not only all the people that I loved. I'm definitely can wait to talk to Apostle Paul. You know, I'm going to say, hey, I'm named after you. Actually, you know, when my pastor named Paul Kim, Paul, I thought I was named after Paul Newman because that's what I liked. I, that's the only Paul that I knew. I didn't know Apostle Paul. I was ignorant. But you're a cool guy, you know. And then also I want to look for the uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas, a.k.a. dumb ox, because he was obese. But he is a giant in every sense of the word, physically, intellectually, and spiritually. And I will have a fellowship with him. And I will you know, find Martin Luther, and we will drink the best German beer. And I will meet you know, Karl Barth, and I will, I will complain to Karl Barth, that, Why didn't you use editors before they took your manuscript to print? It was so hard to read and study! You could, if you took a little time to edit your word, this would be easier. More people will know your profound theology. I'll complain to Colbert. Okay. All right. I want to say this. You know, at the end of our worship, we always sing our benediction song. And uh, I'm actually looking for a good benediction song. But so far, I, I couldn't find a better one. So, but, uh, you know, until we, that happened, I want to tell you why we sing that song. Some of you wonder. Kind of a at the end, it's this kind of old, kind of little draggy kind of song, you know, for the joy of human love, brother, sister, parent, child, friends on earth. Now pay attention, friends on earth and friends where above, for all gentle souls and mild, to the Lord of all, we give, we raise our hymn of grateful praise. You know why we sing that benediction song? We are not the only saint. The saints in heaven. We are worshiping together. One day we will join together and worship God together. This, that's, our benediction song is telling us about our hope of a resurrection. That's why we sing that song. Okay? So hopefully today we sing with a renewed you know uh, appreciation. Let me conclude my message today with a quote of C.S. Lewis in one of his last apologetic writings called "The Miracles." There, C.S. Lewis points out an important truth about God's miracles. He said this: "It reminds us that miracles, if they occur, must, like all events, be revelations of a total harmony of all that exists. Nothing arbitrary." Nothing simply stuck on and left unreconciled with the texture of a total reality can be admitted. By definition, miracles must, of course, interrupt the usual course of nature, but if they are real, they must, in the very act of so doing, so, so doing assert all the more unity and self-consistency of a total reality, reality at some deeper level. Okay, let me explain what he's trying to say. The key word here is a total reality. According to C.S. Lewis, miracle of God is not an interruption of nature. It's actually integration of a nature. It's not an interruption. It might interrupt the course of a speed of it, but actually it is an integration. Natural law was not broken by God's miracle but actually brought together for the will of God. miracle of God do not halt nature, but actually hold it together. And C.S. Lewis is absolutely right, because when God does a miracle, the creator of a universe does it, quote, super-hypernaturally. super means not anti-naturally, not unnaturally, but it is a guiding naturally. Super means above. You are guiding naturally. So for instance, you know, when God rescued the Israelites from the approaching Pharaoh's army of a chariot, what did God, how did God, you know, save them? God didn't make an instant, you know, a breach over the Red Sea. He could. He didn't do that. How, then, what did He do? Exodus fourteen twenty one. The Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night, Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into a dry land, and the waters were divided." Do you notice? God uses nature to perform miracles. That is called the supernatural. So in that sense, you know, when we pray for someone's healing and that healing happens naturally through human medicine, Or supernaturally, some kind of instant healing. This is all God's work. When God does a miracle, God is exerting the authority of a creator for all of us. And the amazing thing is that nature obeys God. Amen? We need to learn from our nature. Because every season, nature obeys God. Only one who doesn't don't obey God is us. Inconsistent is us. You know, Martin Luther said, Our Lord has written the promise of a resurrection, not in the books alone, not in the Bible alone, but every leaf in springtime. I love this quote. Because without failing, every spring comes, a bud we see on the tree branch, and we know very soon there will be green leaves comes out and flower comes out. Every bud you see on the tree, I hope reminds you of your resurrection and my resurrection, our glorious future. Amen. Our beloved uh, Dallas African American pastor, TD Jake, Bishop Bishop, Bishop D. Jake, or whatever, TD Jakes, you know, said it this way: Salvation is the root root of our life. Resurrection is a fruit of life. So true. We are, because of Christ's compassion, His love planted a salvation in the heart, and one day we will be fully resurrected, fully alive with our loved ones. That is the compassion of Christ. And let us be compassionate, show compassionate in compassionate action and kindness and gentleness to the people around us let's pray